The International Space Station has been a big part of humanity's ability to understand space and deep space travel. Every mission up there is a step toward that goal. Air Force astronaut Colonel Nick Haig has wanted to be an astronaut since he was five years old. Then his big moment finally came in October 2018. He made history. He became one of the very few Americans ever to abort a spaceflight mission after the launch. I initially sat and talked with him and his wife in the fall of 2018, just before that launch. Fast forward to now. He's been rescheduled to go back up to the ISS on March 14, 2019. We'll hear his perspective on getting a second shot at his dream and what it took to get there. And let's hear from the man who lived to tell the tale. I'm Staff Sergeant Trevin Cannon, and this is the Air Force Podcast. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Here's our conversation just before the first launch. Welcome, Colonel Nick Haig, uh, joining me for the Air Force podcast, along with his wife, Lieutenant Colonel Katie Haig. Well, thank Hi, you. Good morning. Uh, so we, are you both into science? Is that a thing? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not a thing for me. Uh, no, actually, I'm a public affairs officer. So oh. I, am, uh, I am on the softer side of... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> of science. We balance each other out. Very cool. <laughs> you just kind of reel him back in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in October, uh, taking off from Kazakhstan in the Soyuz MS-10, you're going to join the Expedition 57 crew, returning to Earth in April 2019 as a member of Expedition 58. Talk a little bit about what you specifically are entrusted with doing up there for six months. What's going to be going on? Yeah, so there's there's a lot going on. And uh and really, I'm I'm rotating in as a as a, a crew member, and we train to be able to do pretty much anything up there. Uh, we're up there for six months, so it's really tough to to say what you're going to be doing on a, a daily or weekly basis while you're there, um, because the the schedule is so dynamic. Uh, so we train to be able to handle maintenance activities uh, to maintain the the space station as a as a national laboratory for research. Uh, we train to be able to do spacewalks to go outside and, and, and fix things if we need to. Is it structured in such a way, because I'm, I'm sure that I feel like when with the space mission that every single step is, is structured to the T, do you just keep purposefully busy over the six-month period, or do you kind of, are, is there free time, or is every single second of every single day taken up? So the answer is yes to both of those, right? So every every minute of the workday is mapped out by a team of thousands on the ground trying to make sure that we have everything we need to be successful and that we're using the time up there to the maximum efficiency. Uh, but you can't work every minute of every day and still have anything left in the tank. So we work a, a fairly standard work week, uh, five and a half days a week, and we work for eight and a half hours a day uh, so that we do have time to recoup as well as spend a little bit of time uh, in the Let's evenings. Get on the top of the spaceship and drive golf balls into space. Yeah, it's, well, it's, not, it's, it's not, uh, <laughs> not quite like that, but you do get the chance to, you know, to do hobbies. So, Watch movies. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so looking out the window uh, and uh, kind of thinking about uh, what you're doing and putting it in perspective, yeah. uh, you get the opportunities to do that. Uh, yeah. contact with the uh, the family and stay in touch. You get a chance to do that as well. How does he involve you guys back on Earth? 
so we're not sure yet because <laughs> this is his first launch but um there is a uh, great group of people from nasa that provide psych support for the family um which sounds a little scary but it's actually pretty cool um they set up uh, video teleconferences with us for once a week and it's at a certain time obviously because it, it's got to be linked up I guess um, and then we're able to send small little care packages up to the station really yeah it's really neat so the the supply vehicles the resupply vehicles that go up throughout his time up there we have like a small little piece of that package <laughs> that we can add a box of cookies or a t-shirt or you know, a picture one of the kids drew, and then when we talk to him on the weekend, they'd be able to see it. The kids will be able to see it floating up there, which if, is kind of cool. If you did send a t-shirt, you could wear it pretty much the whole time because in zero gravity, it just kind of floats on your skin, right? So you don't, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. actually no, it get gets oily. Dirty. It doesn't, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so, you know, we have to wear clothes. We th there's no way to do laundry up there, so we wear them until we need to throw them away, and then we throw them away. Um, but I've been told that you can wear a t-shirt for quite a long time up there and it stays relatively yeah. clean because it doesn't touch your skin so much. Yeah. Um, is there a possible spacewalk in the works for you? Um, so while I'm up there, there is one uh, spacewalk scheduled in December uh, to go out and it's, it's really to try to configure the space station to uh, be in a good position in case we have a failure in the future. Uh, the robotic arm has, has dual strings of power that, uh, that we need in order to provide redundancy when we capture visiting vehicles uh, that come up with supplies. And so if, <coughs> excuse me, if one of those goes down, then uh, we lose that redundancy. And so we're going to perform a spacewalk uh, uh, using the robotic arm as well as two people outside the station. Uh, we'll work together to try to uh, establish a third way to provide that redundant power for the robotic arm. I've read somewhere about 250 to 300 experiments you'll be conducting up there. Which one would be your favorite and what, what would some of them even be? Yeah, so um, surprisingly, two-thirds of the science we're going to perform up there, we don't see until we get on orbit. So they, they train us to uh, generic skills to be able to perform any science that they want us to, to do up there. Uh, so some of the ones that I'm going to do and I'm going to fall in love with, I don't even know about yet. Uh, some of the ones that I've been involved with so far are the ones where I'm the subject. So there's uh, a couple dozen different mm -hmm. studies where I'm the guinea pig mm -hmm. and uh, they're, they're collecting uh, information about me. So uh, some of them are invasive, like I've had to do muscle biopsies. Uh, some of them are, are just trying to look and they image your mind and they want to see, you know, they're looking at the brain and how we react to tasks and on the ground, how we determine uh, how we navigate uh, because we have gravity as a, as a constant that tells us where down is. And then when we go up on orbit, they're looking at how does the brain change because you lose that, does to your that equilibrium. gravity. Yeah. yeah. So you start to ignore your equilibrium, but then also the, the, the neural pathways in your head may change over time because you're not thinking about gravity pulling you down all the time. And so how you work, move around in three-dimensional space, uh, they're interested in how that changes. Yeah. So sure. it's, there's a lot of changes up there, and that's probably the most fascinating thing yeah. is how much the body changes. As commercial space travel evolves with things like Policy Directive 1, which was just signed mm -hmm. recently, um, what do you hope to see 
um, in your lifetime, because policy directive one basically is putting a whole bunch of money back into space uh, and a lot of refocusing on those efforts. Yeah. So what do you hope to see what, is, what that, that brings? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that the target is, uh, is to try to get back to the moon uh, and then push on from beyond there, right? And so I think that, you know, what I'd like to see, if, you know, first off, our mission on the station is is part of uh, the necessary step to enable that. Some of the things I'm going to be demonstrating up there in terms of, of the technologies we have in the new systems are really trying to figure out how to make them efficient enough to be able to use them as we go. So life support, how do we recycle the air that we're, we're breathing? How do we, how do we reclaim the water uh, so that we don't have to take you know, all the water we would need for, for the years that it would take in order to do a Martian mission and come back. All of those technologies we're trying to, to really ring out on the space station because it's easy to launch a demo, bring it home, fix it, launch it again, and so we're really close. And so before we start taking those steps deeper into space, w we test those things out on the station. So trying to continue that. So, and, you know, personally, I'd like to see that momentum continue. Uh, you know, it's exciting to, to, to see us trying to push back to the moon and, and to push beyond that. And so if we can just keep making those steps, you know, every mission yeah. is, not, is not a giant leap. Every mission is a step. And you know, if we can continue to string together successful steps, uh, it'll be pretty amazing what we can accomplish. Yeah, you're close enough to where if you know your spleen ruptured, you're four days away from from Earth. Versus, how would you deal with these things nine months away? Absolutely. And on Mars, and I think, and like studying the different ways of propellants to get you from instead, because all it takes all the fuel to get you out of. The, gra the pull of gravity from Earth, mm -hmm. instead of just maybe taking it, launching from the moon, where it takes much less energy to do that. Where does your imagination go when you see that this funding and interest more broadly is returned to the space race that we're trying to get? We're more serious about it now. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, my imagination goes where every, every, every little kid's imagination goes. Uh, you know, the idea that we become a, you know, a spacefaring, uh, world where people go and, and they work and they live in space and it, it becomes routine. So the more people that can experience it, uh, the more we can push uh, further into to space and establish a more permanent presence. Uh, yeah, I just think that's really exciting. Yeah. What, what about your imagination? What happen <laughs> when you're going to look up and see you know, my husband's <laughs> out there? What, what? Um, I have a little bit of a different perspective. <laughs> Um, it is very exciting, and it's exciting for, for our family, but I will tell you from the spouse standpoint, and you mentioned deployments, yeah, it's a little unnerving. <laughs> so how do you file a travel voucher? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> DTS. You, 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 you use you DTS, yes. Do you actually I'll, do I'll, that? I'll, I'll, When I get back, I'll file a travel voucher. To, you know. I think it's $3 a day or I something. Was, uh, I was on lower, in low Earth orbit for okay. six months. All right. <laughs> Incidental expenses. There you go. Um, <laughs> Uh, what discovery from space travel thus far is most important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, it's probably it's what I think is something that we've been able, we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you know, 20 years on the space station is, uh, that's a pretty significant milestone. And you had mentioned previously the, the, the term space race. And so I, I think that the, the space station has served as this symbol of what we can accomplish 
and it's pretty amazing that the the technological feat of trying to have people living continuously for almost two decades in orbit um, and all of the the complexity of the system and and the vast team on the ground that takes to make that happen and so I think one of the discoveries I think we've proven to ourselves is that the secret in that you know you mentioned uh, Jack Fisher earlier and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he would say the you know the awesome sauce that's in there. He does love yeah, that he word. Loves I that know. Term. Uh, that special sauce is the collaboration that it takes to make that work, and that's that's on a you know the team inside the United States, the 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 collaboration between NASA and the Air Force, and all the support that it provides. It's the international cooperation with all the you know 15 other different countries that are participating it takes that kind of level of cooperation to make something like that happen. So, you know, I think that's a discovery that we've proven and we need to continue that as we move forward. Just let it evolve as far as it can possibly yeah. go. Yeah, you know, this sense. idea of driving deep into space and going to Mars, it's, we need that special sauce. We need that level of international cooperation and collaboration in order to be successful. On a more personal note, what does your family think about you going to space for six months? What is that conversation like if you... Well, I mean, on, on, on a personal note, so if we start just, you know, you know what, does, what does Katie think about this, right? So this is not <laughs> the first deployment we've had. Um, I, you know, I've stayed home while she's deployed. Uh, we've both been deployed at the same time. So we've got experience, and I, I think that comes with a level of familiarity with the process. We know that it's going to be difficult to be away for six months. Um, we also know that it, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of reintegration after you get back before everybody's back in sync and, and, and you get back to normalcy. Um, it's, uh, it's a challenge uh, that, that we're familiar with. Uh, I think that you know, we talked about connectivity before. When you look back at our first deployments, uh, when we first started as, you know, as uh, captains, our first deployments were as captains, um, the connectivity then compared to the connectivity now, I'm going to be able to call and talk so much that it'll just be annoying to her. Back then, you know, if you were able to talk once a week, it was a huge Could deal. Could you stop floating out of the frame, <laughs> Nick, please? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It'll be boring. It'll be monotonous. And hopefully that's, that's the way so that I'm so integrated into the life that it's, it's just like I'm not gone. Yeah. And I think, I think from our standpoint, we're kind of lucky in the sense that we're both active duty Air Force. And so our Air Force careers have kind of prepared us for the separation. I think if there were any preparation, that would be we're kind of lucky to in do that it. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that when you look up, it's going to, oh, it's terrifying. Be <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Well, when, when she looks up, I'm only 250 miles away. Oh, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not thousands of miles away. Yeah, make it sound really. <laughs> well, on certain simple. nights you can see it. Um, yeah. I, I, I went um, on a stargaze uh, thing the other night, and y we were able to see uh, Jupiter and its rings. There's an app yeah, where you can, like you know, watch the ISS fly over or whatever. We, so we, we, I've we, downloaded the app. Is basically what I'm saying. We've <laughs> seen the the space station fly over standing in our driveway. Yeah. So you don't have to cool. go in. You, People don't realize that if you just look at the right time, you can just look up and, and there it is. It just looks like a star screaming across the sky. Absolutely. Spe speaking of Mars, uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's I think what's on a lot of people's minds when we speak space. 
because that is endlessly exciting. The radiation is really bad on Mars. Mm -hmm. And if we were to colonize it, we would basically have to live underground because the percentage that we're exposed to is almost unbearable. So why do we want to go there? You know, at some level, there's there's this deep urge inside of us to, you know, many of us to go and explore the unknown. Um, the whole purpose for going out into space is to try to to try to answer questions. You know, in the in the process of of exploring, we start we we make these discoveries, these scientific discoveries, and we're able to better explain the past and and what's happened. Um, we're better to able to understand our environment around us and 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 figure out you know what's going to happen. But I think in that process of exploration, you know, we also find out a lot about us. Um, and and when we figure out what's inside of us, then we can better craft and understand and, and determine our own future. Yeah, and I think it's happening in a way that I didn't see. In other words, um, robotics are advancing faster than jet propulsion, so 3D printing, we could theoretically 3D print an entire colony before we even get there, and then we just get there and move in. Yeah, I mean that's you, you. You talk about the challenges. I think there's a lot of things that we're going to need to solve in order to get there, and those solutions don't exist yet. So you know, for the people out there listening, we need innovators. We need people that are that are looking for solutions, and and have big ideas and want to try to try to solve hard problems. We're going to need all that help in order to make this work. Uh, the the in solution, we don't have an idea of what it looks like yet. Yeah. And besides trajectory windows for Mars, that if you don't go, if you don't pick the, it's like two years and some change. If you don't take off, then you can't be slung into its orbit. It's uh, very precarious. It, it is. I mean, it leads to these really long missions. But those are not unlike some of the really long missions that some of the first explorers trying to circumnavigate the Earth took. Um, that you know, their 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 commitments to uh, that put yourself at a lot of personal risk. But you know, there's you know, we can now look back and see the importance of those 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 risks and those expeditions and everything that they secured for all of humanity and our understanding of the world and and helped it evolve into what it is today. You know, those are the same types of things I think we hope to accomplish by going deeper into space. And uh, you spoke earlier about basically working together, you're, you're flying up with a Russian counterpart. Yeah, my commander's Alexei Evchenin. Yeah, and yeah. What, what is that like, working with, with him? So, yeah, no, I know I, I know him well. Um, I, part of my training, a significant chunk of my training in the two years leading up to launch has been living over in Star City, learning how to, to, to fly the Soyuz. And so uh, I've got to know him really well. He's, uh, he's, He's a great guy, and uh, you know I've I just started learning Russian when I uh, showed up at NASA about five years ago. Uh, so uh, it's we it's amazing. The he's a military pilot, and so there's this common understanding we have with each other that you know even though I might be speaking broken Russian to him and he's speaking broken English to me, uh, we understand each other. And we've been able to sit in the sim, you know, over the last year and a half, uh, to the point where 
you know, we know how each other are thinking and, and I can expect, you know, we anticipate each other's moves and we're backing each other up and it feels uh, like a, just a, a well-oiled machine and no different than any crew I could put together here in the U.S. Uh, you know, we're, you know, we're in it together. Mm-hmm. But it's worth, it's worth, I think, highlighting because I, there are a lot of airmen out there that, that are involved in the space mission. Um, but I don't think that they fully realize what they enable us to do in terms of human exploration of space. Um, you know, we launch all of our launch vehicles that resupply the station. Uh, you know, we launch a bunch of those from Florida. Uh, it takes airmen supporting those launches to make that happen. Uh, when I launch out of, out of Kazakhstan, uh, there are going to be airmen uh, positioned to help with an emergency recovery should that be necessary. Um, when I'm on orbit in the space station, if there's debris flying around that could come in close proximity to the space station, we need to move. And so there's airmen on the ground tracking everything that's moving around up there, and they give us notice that that we need to get out of the way. Um, there are airmen that ensure that the GPS signal uh, is, is there for us uh, when we need it. The station relies on that to determine how it's pointed and where it's going in its orbit. You know, we can't do it. We can't do this mission. We can't go up there and perform the science that hopefully is going to help shape our understanding of humanity without airmen. And I just want to say thank you to them uh, for doing what they do quietly and uh, persistently every day. And there is liftoff of the Soyuz MS-10 to the International Space Station, carrying Nick Haig and Alexei Ovchinin. Launch day, October 11th, 2018. The world watched, not yet knowing how close they were to seeing a nearly catastrophic failure. The Soyuz was prepared for its ascent. Five years of preparation led to this moment. The emergency light came on, and that's where it got scary. The rocket boosters failed to detach just before they reached zero gravity. Then they were able to detach the rocket. There was a violent jolt. Then the Soyuz descended toward Earth, maxing out at 6.7 Gs at one point. Average people would panic. 190 seconds into the flight, so he's traveling about 4,700 miles per hour. Haig's training and experience kicked into high gear and was able to survive this potentially fatal emergency. Here's our conversation before his second launch attempt. Air Force training plays into a lot of that. Uh, it's, it's prepared me for everything leading up to, you know, the, the career I had leading up to that launch prepared me to respond in that situation. It's not my first in-flight emergency. We've had those when I was doing flight tests out at Edwards Air Force Base. 
Uh, I think what you realize as you gain those experiences is that the best thing that you could do in that situation to help yourself is to maintain your cool and trust in your training. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, it becomes more reflex than anything. We, we drill it in enough and we prepare enough that when, when it's all on the table and you've got to deliver, it's, you're, you're ready to do it and it's almost second nature. So uh, the fact that I was speaking Russian, uh, it feels weird if I speak English inside the, inside the Soyuz because that's how we train. We train in Russian. Um, and in terms of responding to emergencies, 90% of the time we're in the Soyuz in the simulator, we're juggling half a dozen different emergencies trying to figure out how to make it to the station or make it home safely. Uh, so it really just kicks in. What was going through your mind? I looked at the photograph um, when I was watching uh, on the BBC. I saw a photograph of you sitting on a couch at, at back at NASA, kind of a thousand-yard stare. I wondered what was going through your mind at that time. Yeah, so that photo, um, sitting back on that couch, was actually in Jessica's gone about 20 kilometers from where we landed. They, uh, they got some helicopters out there and picked us up and brought us back to an airport so we could get on fixed wing to uh, get back to Baikonur. And uh, so I'm sitting there on the couch and the head of the uh, Russian space agency, uh, Russ Cosmos is sitting there next to me. Uh, it's just the surreal feeling of, wow, that just happened. Uh, you know, the flight was so quick, it was only 20 minutes and then it was over. And, and then you find yourself completely in a, in a place completely different than you expected to be. And just letting your mind kind of finally relax after all of that surge of adrenaline and working through the problem and landing safely and just starting to process all of that of what really just happened and, and where do we go from here. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it was uh, kind of an out-of-body experience. Did you think your chance was over? Like, how did they get you back in line for a second try? Is that normal? Um, so I don't think there's anything that you can say is normal about what we went through. Um, the, the fact that they put us back in the rotation so quickly, I mean, there's programmatic um, reasons to do that. I'm part of many experiments where they've already collected a lot of data. They already have equipment on orbit to support those experience, experiments for me. They, they have all of my supplies on orbit to support me being there. And so programmatically, it, it, you can make use of those resources. So personally, uh, definitely want to get back there, right? So we're at the apex of our trajectory, and I'm staring out there at the curve of the Earth and the darkness of space, and and you know, just you know, can all so close you can touch it, and then to have it kind of ripped out of your hands, you know, that that's that's devastating. And so yeah, I want to get back there personally. Uh, but what I really think it boils down to is that the mission that we're doing is so important. It's a, it's a mission where we're going up there and we're collecting data so that scientists on the ground can better understand our world. They can better understand our bodies. They can better understand the universe around us. And that's a vital mission that's benefiting all of humanity. So it's important that we continue that. Um, just because there's uh, some bumps on the road or there's some obstacles uh, doesn't mean that we give up. We've, we've learned from our failures and we move forward. Is Miss Haig and family still as excited as they were, or do they want you on the ground now? And, you know, it's mixed emotions just like me, right? They'd love to have Dad at home. Colonel Haig, the other Colonel Haig, is, uh, is excited, um, and the excitement builds as we go each day, but they're also nervous. Um, you, you have to be nervous. Uh, you, you, I think I'm an example of, you know, what can go wrong. Um, luckily, it turned out okay. Uh, 
but you have to you have to approach every launch with an understanding that this is risky and it goes back to what i was saying before we accept this risk because of the importance of of what we're doing so with adversity you know we can always hopefully try to walk away with having learned something is there is, is there a something for you to have learned from this I've been, so I guess the thing that is most impressed me has, I'm just, so the resiliency of my wife and my two sons in this situation, you know, there, there are very few people that can say they've had a loved one that's been on top of a rocket that when it was launching had a catastrophic failure and that are going to turn around and, and watch that person launch into space again five months later. You know, it's, it takes a unique strength. And, and my wife is, is a source of that strength to the family. And so that's, that's what I've learned is, is just how lucky I am to be surrounded by, you know, an amazing woman and a strong woman that's able to navigate all of that and, and keep it all in perspective and, and support our kids through all of it as well. It's, it's, it's been impressive. Are you going to have a new set of experiments or are you pretty much, those are on standby until you get there? Yeah, so some of it's a mix. Uh, some of the experiments wait until I get there because I'm the subject for them. And some of the activities will change because of just the timing. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be fortunate to be up there for is, you know, we're going to have the visit of the, the first commercial crew vehicles, uh, the unmanned ones, and then later on the, the, the manned versions. Um, the, the other thing, historically, it's going to be awesome to be up there for the 50th anniversary of the, the moon landing uh, in July. That's going to be a, a great time to be up there, to be in space while we're celebrating that anniversary. Uh, you know, we'll also be up there on the 12th of April, which is the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first flight in space. And so celebrating those two things while being on the space station that's been operating uh, for 20 years, and in, in a cooperative manner, right as we're at the cusp of getting ready to go back to the moon as, a, as a, an international cooperation again, uh, it's just a really special time to be part of the space program. The world will be watching again as Colonel Haig launches once more to the ISS. We sure wish him the best of luck. On second thought, I don't think Haig's journey has anything to do with luck. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Air Force Podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe to hear more Air Force stories like this. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Trevin Cannon. Three, two, one, zero.